0: The corruption conviction against Brazil's former president Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva is annulled by Brazil's Supreme Court, clearing the way for a potential run in Brazil's presidential election next year. How will the host cities for future Summer Olympic Games be chosen following the recent announcement by the International Olympic Committee that the Australian city of Brisbane is its preferred contender for the event in 2032? And as the UK continues to digest the allegations made by Harry and Meghan, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex during their interview with Oprah Winfrey, which was broadcast in Britain last night, will assess the art of crafting the perfect interview question. Monocle's editor and correspondents are here to discuss those stories today, here on the late edition on Monocle 24. Hello there and a very warm welcome to you to The Late Edition here on Monocle 24. It is Tuesday the 9th of March and I'm Thomas Lewis. and joining us today to discuss some of the day's big news stories from around the world are Ed Stocker, Monocle's Europe editor at large and Daniel Bache, the host of The Entrepreneurs here on Monocle 24. Daniel, Ed, great to have you both with us on a Tuesday once again. Uh, There's obviously one big story which we will touch on in our own way a little later uh, going around today. Uh, but I wonder what's sort of setting the news agendas for you in your various parts of the world today. Daniel, let's start with you.
1: Yeah, obviously, uh, one story dominating the front pages here uh, for the last two days, of course, because we got the review of the, the big interview when it aired on Sunday night. Uh, and then uh, when everyone watched it over in Britain here, uh, the, it has just reverberated uh, across the country. Really incredible. Looking forward to digging into that. Um, lots on the radar here we of course have been following uh, things in brazil uh, which is which is a massive story and uh, also following uh, the fallout uh, from the uh, slow vaccine rollout in uh, in Europe. We're looking forward to digging into Germany specifically tomorrow uh, on The Globalist, uh, something our news editor Chris Chermack has been writing uh, a little bit about. Uh, that's something we've been following closely and, of course, is uh, of interest to uh, to all of us and to our listeners as well, Tomas.
0: And Ed, how about you? How's the week shaping up for you there in Milan?
2: Yeah, I mean, a lot's been happening here. Uh, I, you know, Italy's sort of heading into uh, a bit of a third wave, and um, every Friday we have new announcements. Uh, unfortunately, all those bars and restaurants I were making, I was making you jealous about not so long ago have now shuttered here in lombardy so uh and we could go back into the so-called red zone uh from early next week the announcement will be made on friday so you know you've got that happening and johnson and johnson saying that it's going to have trouble uh, delivering uh, the 55 million uh, doses that it said it was going to uh, to the european union that announcement today so all quite coronavirus related i'm afraid but there are there are plenty of other things to discuss and including a certain royal interview, which of course will be coming on to
0: later in the show Tom. Well there are as you say Ed some bright spots on the news diary today and we'll hopefully touch on some of them during today's show. Ed Stocker and Daniel Beach, thanks again to the two of you for being with us today. Well we begin today's programme in Brazil where a justice at the country's supreme court yesterday quashed the conviction of the country's former president Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva. Lula was convicted in 2018 for his part in a vast financial kickback operation. He was released from prison in 2019, but given that his conviction effectively stripped him of his political rights, he was unable to stand for political office. Until now, that is. Monocle 24's Fernando Augusto Pacheco told The Briefing today how Lula's seemingly inevitable candidacy now in next year's presidential election will shake up Brazilian politics.
2: I think it might be quite an ugly election next year because, you know, as you know, very divisive Bolsonaro and Lula, which perhaps a little bit less divisive, but still nevertheless a divisive figure. It's going to be very difficult to have a third candidate, a more centrist one that will capture the hearts of Brazilians. Brazil is a continental country. It's not that easy to have suddenly kind of a new candidate that will manage to get votes from the south to the north of the country. It would be very hard to avoid the kind of the Bolsonaro versus Lula battle.
0: Fernando Augusto Pacheco there, speaking to us on the briefing a little earlier today. Um, Ed, to begin with you, you were our correspondent in Latin America for, for several years. How dramatic a development is this, this quashing of of Lula's conviction by the Supreme Court yesterday? How dramatic is it in your view?
2: highly dramatic because this has uh, been a dramatic story from the very beginning, uh, from his sort of working uh, class upbringing to sort of battling the odds and becoming president. You know, he he was so uh, popular in Brazil uh, during office. Um, I mean, this is someone who, you know, lost the little finger on his left hand uh, in an accident while working as a press operator in an automobile parts factory, he he had the sort of this story of rags to, uh, you know, I would say riches, but really getting to the highest echelons of. Political power in Brazil. And then, you know, this massive fall f- from grace. But despite the fact that he was convicted, like you say, Tom, in 2018, he remained hugely popular. Before he was disqualified for running in uh, the election uh, of 2018, he was the front runner um, ahead of uh, Jair Bolsonaro, who, of course, went on to win. Um, it will be interesting to see what happens. I mean, this is not saying that he's not guilty. This is uh, basically uh, the charges. Three charges have been annulled against him, uh, saying that the court in Curitiba, which is in uh, the south of Brazil, basically uh, wasn't competent to to deliver uh, those charges. Um, The allegations against him were part of this big probe uh, which uh, has affected many uh, leaders in Brazil, um, including Dilma Rousseff, um, called Car Wash. And basically, the Supreme Court has said that uh, it's, it's basically been difficult to prove that um, uh, the, the rulings against him were linked to the state oil producer Petrobras, which is being investigated as part of this car wash. So it's, it, in a way... It's a a bit of a technicality. Uh, The allegations against him were over receiving uh, gifts and and bribes. Essentially, uh, the main one of this was a seaside apartment. So although this has been annulled now and that does clear the pathway for him to run in next year's uh, presidential election, at the same time, we could also see uh, him facing charges elsewhere. The, The capital, Brasilia, could choose to take up some of the allegations made against him the point being that he should not have been tried for those allegations as part of car wash this big uh, probe that's essentially what it is um as fernando was saying it will be a fascinating and dramatic um 2022 if he does run if he's if his sort of political uh, future uh pathway if you like it is is allowed to continue if he doesn't have more legal complications um it would really uh cement the polarization of brazil already a pretty divided country jair bolsonaro uh as you know has said some uh pretty damning things about the homosexual community he's been a bit of an apologist for uh the military junta uh, in the past that you know the dictatorship that ruled brazil at one point um, he has been something of a, a covid skeptic to say the least and he of course uh, did get it and and overcame it fairly easily which uh, you may argue uh, played in his favor but you know brazilians and a big reason why he won the election in the first place was that brazilians are tired of of crime uh, and corruption and he, he he seemed to offer some solutions. Um, obviously it was a big lurch to the right him winning and the interesting question will be that if if Lula and him go head to head if he seeks re-election and Lula uh, seeks to win the presidency again it'll be interesting to see how much Brazil has changed. Has uh, you know has it simply lurched more to the right and this is something that will at least last in the short to medium term or are, uh some of those even perhaps some of those voters who voted for bolsonaro willing to sort of go to the other side that neither of these candidates are centrist but anyway you know lula is on the left and bolsonaro is on the right uh lula still such a charismatic figure as, as i said before and you'd think uh, that he would have a very high chance of winning the election if he were able uh to to put himself forward
0: well next here on the late edition we're turning our attention to the summer olympic games The Olympic hymn there, the rousing strains of which could ring out across the Australian city of Brisbane in 2032, if the International Olympic Committee gets its way. The IOC broke convention at the end of last month by openly stating that Brisbane was its preferred partner to host the Summer Olympic Games in 11 years' time. The other candidate cities, including Budapest, and a joint bid by the two Korean capitals Seoul and Pyongyang were left somewhat confounded by the IOC's support for Australia's bid for the 2032 Summer Games. Uh, Daniel, to start with you, your home city, Calgary, which famously hosted the Winter Games in 1988, uh, but it withdrew its bid to host the same event for 2026 after a public um, outcry and campaign uh, to withdraw Calgary from the running is this do you think what the IOC is trying to stave off here in future by suggesting a preference so far ahead of when the announcement is usually made for a host city of an olympic games
1: i was i was surprised as well to see that they were uh, sort of putting their weight behind uh, a bid this early this is many years in advance and we've been used to in 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 let's say the last generation these Contests that the IOC put on puts on for for host cities. I remember years ago it was between uh, London and Paris and Madrid, and, and and the New Year's Eve celebration, and and all these events during the year were a big part of the the bidding process to see who was going to, uh, you know, ultimately play host. I think. With the damage that has been done perhaps to that brand in the last little while, just because of, of the pandemic and and uncertainty around the Tokyo games, which uh, have been pushed back to this summer, I think the IOC is trying to get out ahead of things by providing some clarity and that's uh and and that's good for for the olympic brand but also for the host city uh, people want to see what the the vision of the games is going to be and what the impact will be which is a huge part of it the other thing is that to put on a, a summer olympics particularly is a, is a massive undertaking and uh the visual spectacle for people right around the world and the the production value is is immense and unimaginable so i think uh getting ahead and and winning over the locals winning over the country and then and then building up that brand around that specific olympic games uh is going to be uh, really important interesting you mentioned uh, Calgary, which uh, perhaps is, is known to many people around the world more for its failures than its it successes in terms of those who competed, it's it's perhaps best known for the Jamaican bobsled team and and Eddie the Eagle, the uh, the British ski jumper. Uh, but I did a little piece, interestingly, for the Urbanist recently, to just talking about legacy. I found it quite interesting that uh, in a public vote, that Calgary's so. Quickly uh, and overwhelmingly rejected uh, a bid going forward. And I think that had a lot to do with the failure of, of the city and the IOC to really sell a vision um, to the city because uh, when it was put to Calgarians, it, it was sort of framed in, in, in how expensive it was going to be. And people at the end of the day are thinking about, uh, you know, how much tax they're going to pay. And my argument was – in a piece I did for, for for Tall Stories, was that perhaps Calgarians fe- felt that they had already reaped the benefits of a previous Olympics in in the legacy and in many of the great venues that Calgarians can use every day there, um, from the Olympic uh, uh, speed skating track to to the ski hills and, and all that, which is uh, an incredible. Legacy, but in thinking about how you were going to stage a, a modern Olympics, they were overwhelmed by the, the cost factor and not really sold a, a long term vision. So to bring it back to Brisbane, I think there's you know, a, a real undertaking uh, from from the IOC and perhaps even the host city to to get out and, and sell that vision early. It's going to take many many years to to build it and, and make it a reality. Um, but at the same time, it's perhaps still per, per, uh, surprising that uh, uh, the IOC did uh, did pick a favorite, uh, if you will, which uh, it hasn't been uh, the case in the past.
0: And Ed, as Daniel alluded to there, I remember sort of in my younger years that there was this real romance as an onlooker looking at these five cities all around the world bidding uh, for the greatest contest in sport. It looks like that idea, perhaps even that romance, won't be present uh, in sort of selecting host cities in the years to come. Do you think this move by the IOC signals what it hopes will be the shape of how cities will be chosen for Olympic Games? going forward
2: basically uh, the ic says it's part of a more targeted and streamlined approach in which flexibility uh, and sustainability are key now that's quite broad obviously but what it has done is set up these permanent future host commissions and, and and it says that's kind of an aim to keep in step uh, with a rapidly changing world, make of that what you will. Another uh, a sort of change is that it's also um, not um, r- restricted, these bids, to uh, individual cities now. So we see for 2032... Um, Uh, you know we're seeing uh, yes Budapest yes Doha uh, were some of the uh, cities that were hoping uh, to be to to win this bid but also China and the Ruhr Valley uh, as well so that's a change as well we could see in the future um, a nation hosting the Olympics and it moving from city to city Uh, perhaps less romanticism Tom but a bid for it to be an altogether perhaps cleverer process for the future.
0: Well, finally here on The Late Edition, the interview by Harry and Meghan, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, and Oprah Winfrey, was broadcast in the UK in full last night. Reports suggest Buckingham Palace is crafting a response to the more serious allegations made in that interview, which was watched by millions in the US on Sunday night and millions more in Britain last night. But the attention hasn't exclusively fallen on the interviewees, but on the interviewer Oprah Winfrey herself too. The political journalist Terry Stiasny told us on today's edition of The Globalist why Oprah Winfrey's interviewing style had been so successful in her sit down with the Duke and the Duchess. What was interesting is just how much she just let people speak. I mean it wasn't the sort of the probing questions that you might have got with a more kind of newsy interviewer but it was just her occasionally just going what? What? And then just letting them talk a bit more and then occasionally repeating the same question again and going, what? And just inviting them to sort of open up. So she probably got a lot more out of them than somebody who'd gone in with, you know, very sort of hard questioning and very specific questions about what happened. It was just her look of sort of absolute astonishment at the things that she was being told and, and, you know, just gradually drawing them out more and more. I think it was quite interesting. Terry Stiazdy there on Oprah Winfrey's interviewing style. Ed, to begin with you, how effective do you think that style was, as Terry Stiasny characterised it there, not being too hard or too soft and letting the, the interviewees sort of just speak for themselves in many ways. How tricky do you think that is to achieve when you are sitting down in front of an interviewee from your own experience to maintain that balance while you're in an interview setting with the subject in front of you?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'll admit I'm I'm not quite on the same level as Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> not mu- yet, you yet. know. Mu- not yet. I mean, much as I think, you know, I've done some good interviews for Monocle. Not, not <laughs> quite. I mean, a couple of things I'd say. Uh, first of all, I I, I would mildly disagree uh, with that clip, only in the sense that I think she is very probing. I just think that there's an efficacy uh, with the amount of words she used. She's very eloquent. She gets to the point. She can ask a a pretty direct question in a concise way and and she's direct but without being aggressive. So you see it especially in the UK I'd say like I feel that every sort of news interviewer uh, in the UK has to interrupt, has to not let someone finish has to sort of bug someone into answering. Um, and and this was the polar opposite of that. Uh, you know, you can't forget, you know, Oprah Winfrey is a brand. She's the queen of uh, American entertainment television, I'd say. So, you know, this was very much, yes, there, there are news headlines and news takeaways from this, but this was... An an entertainment interview. Uh, she knew she she's extremely savvy, as we know. Obviously, she has her production company Harpo. She uh, you know she uh, she used to be have her own TV show that ended back in two thousand and eleven. She's she had her own TV network that is now been mostly sold to Discovery. So she's very savvy. She sold this interview to, uh, for CBS for a reported. Uh, $7 million. Uh, do- uh, dollars. And and it was, you know, in many ways uh, pretty co- choreographed when we sort of switched from one interviewee, Meghan on her own, to two, to going to a chicken coop uh, and sort of feeding chickens and being dressed more casually. And, you know, we know also that Oprah and the couple our friends don't forget that oprah winfrey was at their wedding so you'd imagine that they're pretty relaxed together uh and that also helps but yes she is very good at being empathetic as well Uh, she asks the right questions without going too far and uh and 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 they seem relaxed and be able to open up to her uh, i've only seen certain uh clips and read quite a lot about it i haven't sat down and watched the whole thing um I, i'm sort of debating whether i need to or want to but i'll, I'll leave that discussion for off air <laughs>
0: And I think that's a fair discussion to be had, Ed. And Daniel, I interviewed the Fox News anchor Chris Wallace last year for for Monaco. And I asked him then what he thought made a perfect interview question. He's interviewed the whole gamut of of people in the US over his long career. And he said that you have to be clear and pretty tight in the words that you use when phrasing a question. So you're not letting the interviewee sort of wriggle away from the point you want them to make. The key quality, though, he said, was to listen and to be responsive to the person sitting in front of you rather than being glued to your notepad or whatever you've brought with you in preparation. What do you think about striking that balance as ed said there oprah winfrey definitely deployed a sort of very open listening approach not forcing the questions but you know peppering the answers with with follow-ups that ensured that you know things moved along what did you make of that the tone that was struck in this interview
1: yeah i think uh, ed uh, summarized it nicely in, in saying that oprah uh in this interview as she always does brings a lot of empathy and i think that is very impactful you know a lot of people are re- reacting to this interview saying it's a master class of journalism and this is how an interview is done of course each situation is very different and there is a relationship here and and we're not exactly sure you know what was agreed uh, upon beforehand uh, and the like but you know i i really do enjoy the time and space that Oprah does um, allow people to finish their points. You know, that there is a fine line, I think, between uh, between grilling people and letting them talk. One of my favorite interviewers is, is one of my former colleagues, um, Tomas, who you'll know, Matt Galloway, and he is praised all the time by by politicians and business leaders and all sorts of people for, for having that bit of empathy but not letting people wriggle away from the questions, as as you put it. And that's very difficult with particularly people that have not only agenda, but, uh, you know, something they're trying to sell. And I'm not sure that was the case, obviously, with the royals here. But if you think of a politician, they come with their talking points and they're quickly, you know, moving along and trying to, to skirt questions. But when you're looking for real a- answers and and real impact, you have to allow that time and space. And and, and empathy, I think, in a television interview is a, is a real way to do it. I could never do a television interview because... I think there's just so many elements there that you have to get right. I think it's it's a little easier for me in in the radio studio where it's just you and one other person and and you're really having to be careful with you, with your words and phrasing and and I think asking direct questions is is really good, but as you as you put it I think you know knowing your topic knowing your subject and and having an idea of what you want to talk about is is important but i think the real lesson for for people thinking about interviewing is is to you know not get caught up in looking at your notepad as you say you have to let a conversation flow but you can't let people uh, get too lost so you need some direction but you also need some some reaction and i think that that's really important that's what we saw here and it really allowed um both harry and megan to open up uh, you know make what you will about the interview and, and the impact um but i think a, a lot of uh, very explosive very big things were were revealed there and, and and it's all down to to the scenario and to the sort of atmosphere you can create uh for an interview subject
0: well, Daniel Bache and Ed Stocker always giving the straight answers to the hard questions. Thank you very much to the two of you for being with us on the late edition today. Uh, that is all we have time for for today's programme. Thank you, too, to Sam Impey, who edited today's show in London. The late edition returns at the same time tomorrow. But for now, from me, Thomas Lewis, thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow.